You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Barry Jenkins won an Academy Award for directing Moonlight and was nominated for If Bill Street Could Talk. His latest project is a multi-part adaptation of National Book Award winner Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. Jenkins joins Washington Post Live to talk about the series, the lessons of history, and the challenge of depicting its darker chapters. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michelle Norris. I'm a columnist at the Washington Post, and we're speaking today with Barry Jenkins about his powerful and much anticipated series, The Underground Railroad. Barry, it's so good to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you again. Nice to see you as well. Good to see you. And we should note that The Underground Railroad is um, an Amazon Prime production and The Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. And so there is a connection there. And just for reasons of transparency, we just wanted to put that out there. So this is an adaptation of um, an award-winning book now adapted by an award-winning director. And as we saw in the introduction, you deliberated on whether or not you should bring this project to film. What was it that you were deliberating about? Was it the largeness of the subject? Was it the painful chapters that you would have to go through as a director and then bring the viewer through? Um, or was it whether whether you wanted to lean into that silence that you talked about and, and yeah, force people to look at something they ignore? Yeah, it was a combination of, uh, of all those things. Um, you know, it was just the, um, the very delicate nature of the subject matter. You know, also too, I was thinking in recreating uh, this era and creating these images, you know, what am I going to do to the cast and crew, you know, who are tasked with embodying uh, these characters? And so it was a combination of all those different things, you know, trying to have the, the moral, the ethical conversation uh, with myself about why it was I wanted to, to make this. Um, and then also, too, uh, really debating if uh, it was necessary um, to give voice to this very turbulent time um, in, in our nation's history, even through the magical realist alternative um, alternative history uh, gaze uh, given to us by the brilliant Colson Whitehead. How did you take care of the cast? Because let's just let's just say up front, this is tough viewing. I mean, it's tough in all kinds of ways. There, you hit painful parts of my soul that I didn't even know were there um, mm -hmm. in these nine episodes. And so, how did you, how did you take care of the cast on set, and how did you take care of yourself? Yeah, we had a, a guidance counselor a slash therapist on set, uh, a woman named uh, Miss Kim White, you know, who's a licensed clinician. Uh, and she was great, you know, she was tasked with, you know, just uh, watching out for all of our, our mental well-being. You know, typically on a film, uh, the director gets to call action or cut, gets to dictate what we do or don't do when we start and when we stop. But on this set, uh, Miss Kim, her, her power superseded mine. And so uh, she, uh, we all empowered her to just be a watchful eye on set. And sometimes people would go to her and express that they were feeling uh, certain things. But just as often, she would just walk up on people and just check in and, and ask, how are you doing? And there was a moment when she uh, she pulled me um, off my own set um, uh, because some of the things that we were dealing with, and not even just visually, these things were very difficult to process, you know, mentally, emotionally, some of these things are very difficult to process. 
Are you willing to say more about that? What did what did she see, and and why did she pull you off set? Oh, uh, you know, it's funny. We we talked about this a couple of weeks ago because it's been you know we filmed the show in 2019 and in 2020. It's crazy. So much has happened. Uh, it's been a while. Um, but she said my posture had changed, um, and I think what it was was I was trying to put on a very strong face uh, for the crew because you know we're having this conversation about the about the themes and 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 the the tone of the piece and and you know what it says about America and this and that but it's also a work of art that has to be constructed. And so I was shouldering both the burden of creating this thing and orchestrating this huge production, but also too, these very heavy emotions. And I was just like keeping it all in, uh, trying to be strong for the crew <laughs> is how I, how I phrase it to myself. Um, and she one day just walked over and said, I, you, you've been asking me to speak to all these other people, but I think now you need to speak to me. And so she pulled me off. We had a little like hour session, uh, which is expensive, Michelle, because an hour when we're not filming anything, that's expensive, man. Um, you know, that's one more portrait I could have gotten. Um, but, yeah. but it was very, it was awesome. She basically explained it to me. It's great that you want to be strong for this crew, but who was going to be strong for you um, if, if you don't find a way to process and then Important. they share this burden yeah important it's like when you're on a plane and they tell you put your oxygen mask on first before exactly. you do else exactly. it was that kind of moment for you so a lot of people have read this book but let's mm -hmm. walk through the characters at the center of this story is this is this petite woman who is strong in will and strong in character um and her name is cora can you mm -hmm. tell us a bit more about her and her search for freedom yeah, Cora is uh, a young enslaved woman who, I think for me, what I loved about this book was primarily she's driven by this fractured relationship she has with her mother. So right away, it's not about the, uh, the brutality or the legacy of American slavery that's driving her person, her character. It's this fractured connection she has with her mother. And I do think if there's any journey she's going on over these 10 episodes, it's not a journey to vanquish the institution of American slavery is to reconcile this is abandonment she feels from her mother. And uh, the young woman who plays with Tuso and Beidou just did such a wonderful job because, you know, she is our protagonist and she is, we're on this this very heroic journey with our, our heroine. Um, and yet at the beginning, she's very bitter. She's very angry, um, as she should be, you know, because I think anyone born into the condition that she's born into can justifiably be bitter and angry. Um, and so I think Tuso did a really wonderful job of calibrating that. And for me, as someone who grew up with the relationship to my mother that I didn't quite understand and having these feelings of abandonment, I saw a very direct line between myself and her. And can we just say a word about her eyes? Because mm -hmm. she, without saying a word, speaks volumes just by lowering her eyelids and-, and Yeah. Facial expressions are just so powerful. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that was really important to me, you know, having fidelity to the, uh, the time period and the experience of these characters, of my ancestors, I knew that she was going to need to express herself more with her body posture, with her eyes in the early goings of the show. And as she gets further and further away from the plantation, from that first state, as she gains more and more possession of herself, then she can begin to to use language, to use verbal language, to express herself. And Tuso just does such a wonderful job, even to the idea of the brutality that we were talking about earlier. In the first episode of the show, we do show, it's between showing and telling, we do show these acts because they are the catalyst 
for our character to decide this is too much. As the show goes on, however, even though these acts of brutality continue to happen, we don't show them. Uh, instead, an, one character will be telling a story, and rather than cutting to what they're telling, we just go to Tusa. We go to Cora's face, and you can read the wave of emotion she's going through. I think it's a really wonderful, granular, nuanced performance. But because you've seen those earlier things, they're in your mind, and you know they're animated in your mind as well. Um, exactly. She's like, she's like a, a, a plant or a flower or a, almost something that's dried and, 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 and opens up when she gets mm. outside of the plantation. And there's a clip I'd like to share with her and another one of the main characters. Um, she's, she's here with a character named Caesar. Let's just take a look at that before we continue talking. Milady, may I have this dance, Miss Carpenter? You looking mighty fine tonight, Miss Bessie Carpenter. Thank you, Kristen Moxon. Is that so? Yes, it is. Fine thing suits you. And you, Mr. Moxon. And you. There is a wonderful intimacy between mm -hmm. Cora and Caesar there, but also this moment where the camera floats above them, almost as if they themselves have floated above and out of their circumstances. Yeah, I mean, momentarily, momentarily, if you've seen the whole show, um, the context of that image with the image that's come before and the images that will come after. It's funny because I haven't watched it in a while. It's crazy how much she's smiling and how genuine yeah. the smile is. I mean, it's it's pretty tragic knowing what's what's going to happen. But um, but yeah, it was uh, it was this idea of the possibility of what reconstruction could have been, you know, what what reconstruction should have been. Uh, since that chapter of the show was set more or less during the era of Reconstruction and Coulson's alternate history. Um, and there's something just brutally, bitterly um, sweet about the possibility of American exceptionalism, about the possibility of the American dream, realized for all folks, especially Black folks, um, in the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, and yet, here we still are, Michelle, here we still are. And watching that and watching that obvious prosperity and pride in a moment where we're walking up to the anniversary on the calendar of the 100th uh, year anniversary uh, commemorating the Tulsa massacre. You look at an image like that with such pride and, and it reminds you of what people face there in Tulsa. I mean, I mean I'll, 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 I'll just jump in one more image that we're mirroring there. I don't get to talk about as much, but again, this chapter, because it's a skyscraper, we're sort of borrowing from the era of Reconstruction. There were all these black men uh, in Congress and D.W. Griffith, very famously in Birth of a Nation, which the dawn of the modern sort of cinematic medium of feature films. Uh, he has a scene with those black men in Congress and they're, they're drinking moonshine and they're eating fried chicken, their feet are up on the desk. It's really horrific imagery. Uh, the character here, Aaron Pierre, Caesar, he's dressed the same way those black congressmen were dressed 
uh, that, that first class document. And, and so it's one thing of taking that image from D.W. Griffith and recontextualizing it. So people who read Colson Whitehead's book books tend not to read just one. And I also mm -hmm. like how this is in conversation with some of his earlier works. So the skyscraper, mm -hmm. of course, brings to mind the intuitionist, which I believe mm -hmm. was his first. It was the first book of his that I read. And um, and I and I think that one of the characters, the Grace, when we learn her mm -hmm. real name, Fanny Briggs was also the name of a character in one of his earlier books, books as well. So it looks like there's all yeah. kinds of Easter eggs inside here for those who yeah. really uh, that was part his of the it, it was a part of the fun of making the show because I, I tried to adapt Colson's first book, The Intuition, as many, many years ago. I've always had a fondness for it. And so we're borrowing quite a few things from it. Um, you know, the elevator inspector, if this was a feature film and you saw it in a the movie theater, his name tag says James Fulton, um, who was a very prominent character in The Intuitionist. And then, yes, the character uh, of Grace, uh, we learned her real name is Fanny Briggs who was a, a character who's quite notable, I mean, in the, in the, in the intuitionist as well. Um, it was just really, really fun, again, because as heavy as some of the show is, um, it also was very awesome to realize we could step into this universe of Colson's mind um, and really create this almost mythic uh, world for, for our Black characters. So I'm hoping you do make do a, uh, an adaptation of the intuitionist, because I'll be, <laughs> I'll be in, in line to see that. But in this mm -hmm. film, you you tell the story of those who were enslaved. You you talk um, you show in depth the lives of people who enslaved them. But really, one of the other characters, most important characters that creates attention in the film, is someone who searches for slaves who are searching for their freedom. A character named Ridgeway, and his backstory is is uh, is interesting and um, and complicated, and. Um, and he travels with uh, a young black boy who was like a man child um, mm -hmm. named Homer, uh, who, who has earned his freedom. Tell us about why you decided to step inside that storyline with the depth that you did and, and Homer's character, which, of course, is another pan to, you know, the Odyssey and Gulliver's Travels and the, the stories within stories that are all inside of this film. Yeah, Homer was the burden that was gifted to me uh, by Colson because it's a very, uh, very strange character. It was a character I had to really struggle and fight to to understand. And I always want to find a way to empathize with the characters I'm exploring. Um, uh, and he was a very difficult one uh, to empathize with. Um, and and yet I think that's the challenge of uh, of creating art. You know, you want to be led into places you don't quite understand or you're fearful of, I think something really beautiful comes out of that. And the young actor who plays Homer, Chase Dillon, who was 10 at the time of feeling, of, of filming, he did just such a wonderful job of embodying this young dude in a way that he is uh, a real, fully realized person uh, with very strange motivations. Uh, the character Ridgeway, to me, you know, it was sort of about this idea of, of good and evil, heroes and anti-heroes, and this idea of how we frame history um, we oftentimes just know that people were bad or people were evil. Uh, we don't really understand how they became evil, why they became evil, or why they are evil. Uh, and Colson has this great uh, idea in the book about the great spirit, which is this very unifying principle that, that defies ethnicity, defies culture. And he says any, any, man who, who is, uh, this, any man who can see into another man, the spirit is with or within him. And I thought that's a very strange place for this character to originate from. 
And so I thought it was worth exploring, not to empathize or redeem the character, but to truly show this is what's at the foundation, at the root uh, of, of, of folks who become evil. I also thought too, it was a really great opportunity in the show, the age that our main character Cora is, it's more or less the age that the character Ridgeway is in his backstory episode. I mean, look at how different the world is for these two people. I thought that was something that was really interesting and challenging to explore as well. The, and he was searching for a kind of freedom of his own. Um, he was. He, he yeah, was. Not them, but, but he was, you know, a, a seeker as well. Mm -hmm. and, and yet that doesn't justify any other things um, he does. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. I think it makes um, it makes the way we view uh, evil, the way we view uh, aggression much more complicated uh, and I think realistic. Um, and hopefully it's a way for us to look into some of the evil or some of the, the, the ill that's being done right now and maybe see it with a greater context and understanding. Freedom is an interesting word in America. Um, because when we talk about freedom, it is usually around uh, political freedoms, um, freedom of voice, freedom of speech. The word freedom is not attached to enslavement in the way that it probably should be in our mm. schools, in our political discussions. Um, there's a clip where, where Cora, the character who Cora uh, is talking about what freedom means to her. Let, let's take a quick listen to that. You've been gone long enough, gone far enough. Ain't no way, no harm from Georgia's gonna come to you. Not while I'm here. Land is property. Tools is property. I'm still property. Even in Indiana. Say so right here. That may be true. But this farm make enough money to buy out all the folks on that plantation and then some. Hell, I'd just as soon ride down and settle your papers myself. Why ain't y'all then? Why ain't we what? Why ain't y'all gone and bought out all them that can't escape chains? I don't know. Maybe it ain't right yet. Nothing lasts forever, especially for black folks. Maybe we just holding on to what we can hold on to. Protecting our own and growing all the while. Guess that make Mingo right about me then. I ain't one of y'all. So I hold on a little. When that vote happened, However I go, I'm honored. It ain't gonna come to that, I promise you. No. Don't promise me nothing. Everybody keep telling me how special I am. What good is a railroad if only special folk can take it? What good is a farm full of freedom if only special folk can till it? There is a lot going on in that scene. She's talking about a railroad, but it is a railroad that is truly underground that takes mm -hmm. her on this state odyssey, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, and Indiana. Um, and 
she's talking with someone who has the ability and freedom to use their wealth and their will to provide freedom for others. And at the same time, she's talking about herself who is in a state of freedom, but doesn't feel it in her mind. And mm. so it, it seems to be, it seems to be that you're saying almost that the hardest jails to escape sometimes are gateless. That yeah, and, and, and also too, and, and oftentimes once we do escape, um, the, 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 the simplest thing is often the most difficult thing or the last thing, which is to help someone else um, escape. That is a heavy conversation, man. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm upset with you, Michelle Norris. <laughs> I am not ready to unpack that one. You know, it's, it's funny. You make these things. And, uh, we need and the right for that one for us, right? Yeah. We need our- the, the privilege of being an artist is you, you come up with all the naughty things and you don't have to explain them. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was really important for the show to have the, the space to contain these differing viewpoints. You know, even though Cora's arrived at a safe space, it's not enough for her. It's not enough for her. She's like, oh, if this space is only safe for me, is it truly safe? You know, if freedom is only given to me, is it truly freedom? You know, this is in some ways the story of America. You know, if, if this idea of American exceptionalism, this idea of there being one right way to be American, um, all these, all these, these different things. You know, can America be free if everyone, if not everyone, has access, full and equal access, to that freedom? What's heartbreaking, Michelle, is that these characters are speaking more or less in circa 1850, pre-Civil War, and yet so much of that conversation in particular could very much take place, you know, right down the street here uh, in 2021. I want to talk to you about the sound in this film because having worked in audio for so long, the 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 sound in this film was so lush and beautiful and haunting, whether it was the crickets, there were always crickets. There were, mm-hmm. and they were loud, and the cotton, um, and the the making of horseshoes and the fires, and there were fires everywhere. That seems to be one of your signatures, the mm-hmm. use of sound as its own character. Yeah, it was, was very particular to this piece though. Um, you know, again, I was trying to do whatever I could to contextualize the experience of these characters. And one of the things I realized is, again, they didn't have full possession of the person, especially the, the those who were enslaved, and yet their minds, you know, no one can control what you hear. And so I feel like they were very in tune with their surroundings. And also too, moving from feature films where you're in this big theater with a big screen to television, the one thing that is proximal, whether you're wearing earphones or whether you've got your little 5.1, uh, set up in your, your living room or your, your media room, that is very proximal. And so it felt like that was the way to really immerse the audience um, in the main character's journey. And so, yeah, there's a whole world of sound um, that Cora is living in that hopefully, you know, we did a decent job of translating to the audience. Um, and I think there's something just very, very keen about the freedom that I feel my ancestors who, again, I think because their bodies were restrained, their minds must have been robust, just so robust. And I tried to take almost like an Afrofuturist um, sort of approach to them. We always think of Afrofuturism as something that's in the future with spaceships and Sun Ra and those things. But I think that these, these folks, my ancestors, I think their minds, because they had to be so active in order to endure the physical hardships they faced, that there was something Afrofuturistic about the soundscape we could create for Korra as well. 
You keep saying my ancestors. This film must have meant something very different to you because you were writing about, you were working with, you were crafting something, you're directing characters who are portraying people who stepped this earth ahead of you. Had had you ever been on a plantation? Had you ever been in a cotton field? I, I had never been in a cotton field before prepping for this show. Uh, it was fascinating to see what what cotton actually looks like to reach down and touch, um, touch, touch the branches. Yes, exactly. Um, it was it was really fascinating to go to a, a plantation, to all these different spaces. You know, I've been to uh, to Krakow, uh, Poland, and and didn't go to Auschwitz. I was I was over there for a film festival, but even just being in that space, there's something you feel. Um, and for whatever reason, because of the way this history is taught in schools. I just wasn't prepared for how how heavy uh, the, the level of synesthesia that would arise from just physically being in these spaces. And then we're recreating these images in the spaces from this entirely in the state of Georgia in so many spaces where these things happened. And it was, it was overwhelming at times. I went through a whole range um, of emotions, um, but one of those ranges was there was this distance between myself and my ancestors, I feel, before making the show and over the process of making it, that distance just it just shrank and shrank and shrank and shrank until it sort of felt like it became like this. Um, you know, I, there were so many background actors on this show and principal cast as well, but I really loved working with the background actors because there were times where we would call cut. I would assume everyone would want to flee the set and get out of their wardrobe, but uh, we rebuilt the slave quarter from the ground up, um, spec to spec, as it would have been. And it was just so beautiful to see so many of these wonderful people inhabit the bodies of, yes, my ancestors. Um, it was a really beautiful thing. Making the show felt like hugging them um, in a certain way. Uh, and sometimes that hug was, you know, encoded in tears, but sometimes it was also encoded in dignity and joy and pride. What do you want people to take away from this series after watching all 10 episodes? And, and what do you say to, to those who can't get past the first 10 minutes, who can't, mm. you know, watch that whipping scene, who, who can't stay all the way to the end because of what they're seeing done to black bodies again and again and again? Yeah, I think a couple things. Um, I think, uh, one, there's only two of these 10 episodes that take place on the plantation, the first uh, and the last. Um, I think the journey that we go on is a part of this idea I think, you know, I've often, I've been saying that we were, we're trying to refer to my ancestors now as enslaved rather than slaves. Um, and what that does is it, it places the onus on what, would, on what was done to them. It takes the onus off of defining who they were or what they did. And I think the show over the course of its 10 episodes, it seeks to recontextualize, to fill in this very flat depiction of who they were um, and recontextualize and repurpose that image to show uh, what they did, uh, who they were, how they lived, and, and, and how they endured. Um, we think of sacrifice as being this thing that's wrought in death. And I think in this case, um, if there's anything I've learned about my ancestors through this, was the sacrifice was in living. Um, and I wanted to really give a three-dimensional depiction of the lives that they lived. Um, as far as the first 10 minutes, um, the only thing I can say is that in making this show, we strove to do whatever we could to tell the truth about these events, but also to Hilton Isles wrote this review of Moonlight where there's a scene where the character Little asks Juan a very particular question about a very particular word. And Hilton said, he unpacks the word, but he doesn't unpack the boy with it. 
And I think we try to unpack these images, but not unpack ourselves or the audience with it. So the whipping scene you're referring to, it takes place at night, which was done intentionally. So you can only see so much in a great big wide shot. I'm going to use this as an example of why I think people should, if they're on the fence, uh, watch the show. We then go from the acute trauma in this wide shot and we pan over and we come off the physical trauma. And now we land with the other enslaved who are there to bear witness. And now we're showing how this acute trauma is metastasized and becomes communal trauma. I think in that way, we're presenting the image, but we're trying to unearth some different aspects of it, uh, aspects of it that haven't been shown um, in other works uh, dealing with these images. So that said, um, I am not demanding that anyone watch the show. I think the conversation that we're having around what people will or won't watch, what people can and cannot endure, I think it's very, uh, very worthy. Um, but I do think that if you want to dip your toe in, just know that the show was made with you in mind um, and that we're not here to devour anyone, you know, in the creation of these images. There are um, there are scenes where you watch um, some of the things that happen to to the characters and some of the things that happen to people you don't really get to know much. Um, you don't mm -hmm. know, but you're still invested in them because mm -hmm. they're human beings. Uh, and you exactly. make sure that in case we come to see them in see their humanity, uh, and and there is a callousness um, in in the people who are holding the whip and the people who are sipping tea or dancing um, and dancing. You know when the fiddler is playing beautiful music while someone is is you know literally burned at the stake. Are are you concerned that in a depiction like this, which is true to the book, that people would look at a scene like that and say, oh, that couldn't possibly happen. People couldn't possibly be that diabolical. Oh, there was there is so much so much worse that happened. Um, people were absolutely that diabolical, and this is set in the 1850s. Um, my experience with scenes like that were in these images from the Jim Crow South, um, which is much more recent than the time period depicted in the show. And always the aftermath: a group of white citizens standing beneath a tree, looking back at the camera, um, while one of my ancestors is um, inanimate. Um, uh, 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 on display uh, for these people's pleasure. So these things absolutely did happen. Um, they're not uh, be beyond uh, beyond belief for sure. And the research that that I did and that Colson did, again, much much worse, uh, much worse happened. But I don't even think that's the point. That's not the point. Um, I think uh, for our main character, it takes um, an extreme act to get her to believe that that her freedom is worth. Uh, pursuing that her life um, is worth fleeing from the horrors of this this uh, this condition. I will say, even in the depiction of that scene, because my experience with these images is again a still photo from the Jim Crow era with my ancestor inanimate. What we sought to do was give agency to the person who's in the background of that photo to bring them so into the foreground that the audience is forced to embody them, even for a brief moment. You know, just so that I think as an audience member. But also within the scene, uh, we have to understand that these things are not going to remain uh, unnoticed. You know, this vacuum, this cavity in the American historical record must be filled. You mentioned um, the communal scenes that you that you and there are many of them. And sometimes they are in the field and sometimes they're watching something horrible. Sometimes they're in a train station. Um, but this this notion that uh, we are legions mm -hmm. and it, made me think about the the people who were enslaved and seeking their 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 freedom but it also made me think about the audience so mm. we're watching via a streaming medium right and i'm wondering if if you 
yearn for a day when a group of people may be able to watch this in communion with each other. You know, that's a very different experience. If as a director, you're, you, you know, you, you regret in some way that we couldn't see this in a movie theater. In some way, but I think, especially with the conversation we've had just now, you know, I felt like it was important because I knew there were going to be places where I was going to be very forthright about these images that I empower the viewer, that they have the right to decide with whom they watch, when they watch, how they watch. I think that's very important because of some of the uh, some of the ver some of the veracity uh, of a few of these images. Um, that said, there is a communal nature to the show, especially in the later chapters, and uh, nothing would make me happier, especially because I've had the experience. Many of the shots you're talking about were not planned. It was just the experience, the feeling of being in these spaces. That train station, by the way, is in Macon, Georgia, uh, where we have the, the, the largest number of our background actors. And there is still a sign in that station that says uh, colored only, there's a colored only section. And to have all these black people overtake, overrun, dominate the space, you know, in the service of honoring, you know, all these black folks who came before us, all our ancestors, there was something so beautiful about it that I had to stop production. And basically, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm that grandma now running around going, okay, baby, get in the photo. We got to take a picture of everybody, you know, get, get, get cousin this and cousin that, everybody get in. And that was what we did whenever those things happened. It just came out of this wonderful feeling. And so... I haven't actually, I haven't thought of it, Michelle, the idea of a communal experience of watching this, maybe as the show evolves and more people um, dip their toe in and experience it, experience it, maybe there is a version where we could do that at some point. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it had to be television. It had to be. I, I love the image of you running around trying to get everybody in that shot when you saw something that that this had is to be literally what happened multiple times because also because the sometimes the light is so perfect and it's not planned and it's, it's literally you're that grandma trying to grab all the little cousins all the nephews get everybody in front of the camera just for that moment um and, and they made the show not, not even that they're in the show they make the show they make the show they make the endurance required for that first hour you know so much worth um the beauty of that that eighth and ninth hour well, I am so glad we got you in front of the camera to talk about your art and your vision and this series, The Underground Railroad. Barry Jenkins, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. Mutual, my dear. Mutual, Miss Norris. Thank you very much. Good. Thanks for being with us. And that's it for this conversation. I hope you will join my colleague Tracy Jan on Tuesday, June 1st at 1230 p.m. in conversation about the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre important um, to remember that day and hope you will join Tracy for that conversation. She'll be speaking with Mary Elliott and Paul Gardolo from the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Don't miss it. I'm Michelle Norris and thank you for watching Washington Post Live. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.